0: Today we'll speak about the practice of anapanasati pavana, or mindfulness with breathing development. However, first we would like to review the lesson of walking here from the meditation center in the way of walking without a walker, that the whole time of walking there is no walker. I'd like to review this a bit. This matter has the importance equal to being the heart of Buddhism. You should understand that if we practice anapanasati Completely, then we will be able to act without an actor. Whatever the action, there will no longer be an actor. Or when we will be able to experience without requiring an experiencer, and the same way with everything else. If we practice Anapanasati completely, then it will lead to us realizing this part of Buddhism. Please don't consider this something strange or supernatural or beyond one's abilities, because it's something totally natural. It's the heart of Buddhism. And finally, there will be life without any one who lives. There'll be life fully, but there won't be the, the person who owns life or has life in any way. There'll just be life. For the ordinary man in the street. This sounds like something impossible to have life without the, the person who lives. They will think it's crazy, ridiculous, stupid. But let us affirm that even if you don't understand this right now, that one day you will be able to understand that we can have life without life having an owner. There's no need for the person who owns or possesses life. So the words having life without an owner, these ought to be contemplated as the heart of Buddhism. These words express the meaning of anatta or not-self. Anatta can be stated simply, having life without an owner. Some people have misunderstood this teaching and then claimed that Buddhism is pessimistic. This is incorrect. There's nothing pessimistic about the teaching of non-Self, that the possibility of having life without an owner, where we don't force on life some owner or something, On the other hand, Buddhism is not optimistic. There's nothing optimistic about the teaching of not-self. Because properly, Buddhism is neither pessimistic nor optimistic. It transcends. It's above both pessimism and optimism. Now, this lesson of walking here without a walker this is a very basic kind of lesson it's like entering primary school it's a way to start our practice but if you can do this then it will grow it will develop step by step until the understanding of anatta not self grows, occurs naturally and more profoundly. Today you may not understand everything we're talking about. Please do not consider that to be a problem. Simply continue to practice anapanasati, and then one day in the future, when your practice has Reach the end, then you will understand fully, out of your own experience, what it means to have life without an owner. So now we will speak, following upon and continuing the previous two talks, we'll examine how to be without existence in all the different meanings of this word bhava or existence. For there to be existence or bhava means that there is a tremendous burden on life. The more that life maintains and protects this existence or these existences the more that life maintains and protects this burden this heavy weight that it carries the first pali word we'd like to mention in this context is Ah, Ohita paro paro means burden means a heavy weight. Ohita means to shed, to drop or to shed. And so ohita baro is to shed one's burdens, to shed the burdens. Now existence we know we know what it's like to carry a heavy object, such as a sack of cement but the, the burden of existence is far heavier. Bhava is like carrying a mountain around. So we should consider what it is to shed such burdens. Another word is bava niroto Niroto means cessation or quenching. Where something goes out and never ignites again. This is similar to ohita baro, which is a shedding of the burdens or even a throwing away of the burdens. But bhava niroto is even more, has a deeper meaning if one understands it. One doesn't even have to go and throw this stuff away. It's just the burdens dissolve, disappear. And then there's there's no burdens. They, the burdens have ceased without having to actually throw them away. Now, in order for bhava to disappear, To end completely. On the highest level this is on a higher level, this is done by eliminating its causes. The way for something to end our to end something is to remove its causes. And the causes of bhava of existence are the defilements, our desire. And attachment when one can remove the desire and the attachment then bhava will disappear automatically the Pali words here are a little longer it's not necessary that you remember them but they are body kina bhava sanyo which means to Sanyochano is a fetter, a bond. And so parikina is to sever, to cut, slice through completely, to sever all bondage to existence. When one has cut through all bondage to existence, there is no more desire or attachment to cause further further bhava, and then the causes, the conditions for bhava have been totally eliminated, and then bhava has disappeared. This kind of activity is called discovering the treasure hidden on one's forehead. It sounds a little ridiculous that there is something hidden on our foreheads which we need to discover, but this is in fact the way life is. It's like there's something on our foreheads which we is hidden to us and we can't see it, can't find it. So our practice is very much one of discovering what is hidden on our foreheads this when we speak of or our inability our inability to see what is hidden on our foreheads is called avicha, which means non-knowing or ignorance. but this is a more subtle meaning of ignorance than the other meanings of with, with which you're familiar. Something very subtle about this level of ignorance that leads us to not even trying to see what's on our foreheads. Not only do we not see it, we don't even try, we don't even care. Discovering what is hidden on our foreheads then is the the supreme art of buddhism the practice of mindfulness with breathing is able to eliminate ignorance it can successively cut through ignorance and therefore we say that mindfulness with breathing is is an art step by step every every step of the way, every lesson from beginning to end is then a very refined art, the kind that will eliminate ignorance. So this is why we have made arrangements for you to study and practice mindfulness with breathing at our meditation center so that you will then Be able to use this art. It seems that nowadays there are many kinds of meditation, many different forms, most of which are, all of which are later products, things that have been created and produced long after the Buddha's time. Here we're not interested in in any of those we're interested in the original form of meditation which the Buddha taught this is sufficient and satisfying for us Um, learning about all the newer methods is very complicated and there are so many to choose from We we feel that it's more than enough to just stick with the original approach of the Buddha. So, why have we chosen this form of meditation? The first reason is that it's convenient. Our breath is always with us. The breath is a very convenient meditation object. Wherever you go, you take it with you. This is a portable kind of meditation. It doesn't depend on a certain place or certain (coughs) paraphernalia or certain teacher or anything like that. The breath then is the most convenient object for meditation. Further, anapanasati is calm and peaceful. It's a cool kind of meditation. There's nothing tumultuous or disturbing about it. There are some kinds of meditation which are quite frightening, disturbing, even kind of ugly. For example, meditation using corpses. Unlike those, Anapanasati is a calm, peaceful, cool kind of meditation, as well as being convenient. The Buddha himself stated that he attained or realized the highest perfect awakening while practicing anapanasati, and so he advised it to many others. And we, in turn, advise it and recommend it to you. And this, this system of practice can be followed from the very beginning to the final end of our spiritual life. Unlike some practices that are only used in under certain circumstances or for a certain period and then we have to switch to another kind of practice, this system of practice Anapanasati, as the Buddha taught it, can take us from the very beginning all the way through to the end. And there's no need for us to switch to different kinds of meditation. It is suitable for the entire brahmajāriya. The brahmajāriya is a term the Buddha used. It means the highest or the supreme way of living. And so for, we often translate it now, the spiritual life. So for the entire spiritual life, this system of practice is appropriate. Sila, which is a kind of natural morality in life. Samadhi, which is training in development of the mental powers and faculties, and Panya, the development of insight in wisdom. These three which make up our practice, practice in morality, in mental training and in wisdom these which are our practice, as well as that which is the results of practice, which we speak of as being Magga, Pala, and Nibbāna. Magga is when, is the level of insight. When wisdom has reached a sufficient level, it becomes a kind of insight which cuts through our our habits of attachment, our ignorance. And then there is pala, which is the fruits that certain attachments have been ended, they've been cut through and eliminated. And then there is nibbana, which is the coolness that results when attachments have been ended. These express the results of practice, the cutting through of attachments there having been ended and the coolness that spontaneously arises when attachment is ended. Whether speaking of the practice or the results, all of these are contained directly within the system of practice, which we call mindfulness with breathing. Um, Ways of practice or practices which have other names, for example, the Noble Eightfold Path, are already included in mindfulness with breathing. Mindfulness with breathing is the Noble Eightfold Path or kinds of understanding that go by other names, such as the Four Noble Truths, the Ariya-sacca. These two are included within Anapanasati. This kind of practice includes all the practices and all the understanding of Buddhism. In this one practice, we we get the whole package. Here, anapanasati means to be interested in, to pay attention to some dhamma. Dhamma means something we ought to, to be interested in, something of value and importance to us. Anapanasati is to pay attention to, to examine, some dhamma with every moment that we are breathing in and breathing out to to attend to this something of importance while breathing in and breathing out and then we can exchange these dhammas. we after the first one then we we move on to a higher dhamma. And then when we're, we've studied that one sufficiently, we move on to another one. And then so step by step, we exchange dhammas for higher ones until reaching the highest, until reaching the end of our practice. And through the entire practice, we examine these different dhammas on higher and higher levels while, while experiencing the breathing in and breathing out. The reasons for, for successively changing the dhammas which we examine, the reasons for this are found within the practice itself not really necessary for that, for us to explain them to you now, because you will see these reasons in your own practice. Why after a certain point, we need to exchange what were the current lesson for the next one, and so on. The the causes for this, the reasons, the value of this will become apparent as we practice. Now the the dhammas or things to be examined are basically four. There is the breathing, the feelings, the mind or the states of mind and then dhamma. These are the things which are problems, or we could say questions for life. These are the things out of which we are making problems. And so these are the important questions in our lives. These four things, the breathing, the feelings, the mind, and Dhamma. These are the four main things to be examined and each of these four can be, is, can be examined in four ways, or four aspects, which gives us a total of 16 lessons. We study these four things, each in four lessons. So the total is 16 lessons in order to understand that the things which are problems for us to answer the questions of our lives. I'd like to say a few things about preparation for practice. First, for preparing the body. We need to have a body which is in a normal, natural condition. We don't mean normal according to the standards of modern society, but we mean normal according to what is the a natural state of health for the body. So, a natural state of health that is maintained naturally instead of requiring all kinds of medicines and stimulants and drugs to, maintain our condition, to have a natural, healthy condition of the body, which we maintain in natural ways, simply by living healthily and sanely. Next, we'll speak of place. To be very simple about this, make it natural. The best setting is a natural one. There are some rather foolish people who think that we have to meditate in an air conditioned room. In Bangkok, there are some meditation groups who have very expensive, huge meditation rooms, which are air conditioned. And the people insist you can only meditate in such a a place. But there are others who cling to the idea that the place must be totally silent that if there's any sound or noise, that we can't meditate at all. This is also rather foolish. One should just look at the example of the Buddha, who meditated in natural places. In a natural setting, it's quite easy to find solitude, seclusion. Even if there is some noise and activity around us, All we have to do is leave those things alone. If we don't pay attention to those things, then we have our solitude. Especially if we forget the self. If we forget ourselves, then there is automatic seclusion in solitude, even if there is various things going on around one. This is how to prepare one's place. Now, we're not saying that one has to go looking for the perfect forest or cave or something like that. It's just a principle of making one's surroundings as natural as possible. One finds the best conditions that are available, but when one cannot find the perfect place, one makes do with whatever one has. We we find what's available and make the best use of it. So one need not be obsessed with perfect, the perfect place. One just uses what's available. The true meditator can meditate even in a theater, even in a busy theater or on the train with all the rattling and noise on the train. One can still meditate in those places. Or in a factory with loud and pounding, banging machinery. One can still meditate, even in such conditions. The only real difference is that those places it's a bit more difficult. It's not a matter of impossible, it's just Some places are more difficult than in the forest. Or one, we need to be strong in our practice to be able to use whatever conditions are available instead of complaining or delaying, make wise use of what we have. And then as soon as we bring attention to the breathing then that wherever we are becomes a secluded place. Further, we we make all of our movements and actions refined and gentle. We don't walk with our arms, you know, pumping and flying all over the place, always in a hurry. We, we don't bathe, making a lot of noise, splashing water, all over. We eat carefully, politely. We don't go to the toilet in crude ways, groaning and pushing and things like that. But with mindfulness, we train to do all things in gentle, graceful, refined ways, rather than loud and crude. This is an important way of training ourselves to be mindful in everything we do. When you walk from the meditation center here without a walker, that is the most gentle, most graceful way of walking, to walk without a walker. To bring this to all of our actions and movements is a very excellent preparation. Another way to put that is to live with postures and movements that do not promote lust, hatred, and delusion. So our way of living, our movements in life, ought to be those which do not promote or which promote as little as possible lust, anger and delusion. This, these are some important ways to prepare ourselves for meditation. So now we come to speaking of this system of practicing mindfulness with breathing itself. The first stage of practice is called kaya nu which means contemplation of the kaya, or body. When we speak of body, or kaya here, it, or in Thai, it be pronounced gaya. When we speak of the gaya, the Buddha mentions specifically the breath, because kaya means a group a group or collection of things. And then he specified the breath, as well as the flesh of our physical bodies. And then these two kinds of groups, the breathing and the, the flesh of the body, these are together can also be called a group or body. Kaya, um, dealing with the breathing and the the body together, the flesh of our body together. This is the first stage of practice. As for the breath and the breathing, this is something you already know for yourself. So we won't we won't go talking about it. Instead, we'll advise you on some ways of practicing with the breathing. The first lesson is the long breathing. We distinguish between long breathing and short breathing. Sometimes these are so different that they're totally opposite. If you, if you take some time and examine all the different kinds of breathing that occur. If You explore all the different possibilities in your breathing. You will discover the long breathing. Once you have found the long breathing, then you, you can study it, investigate it and explore it until you know all the facts and all the facets of the long breathing. Now, in the long breathing, there are variations of heaviness and lightness, of coarseness and refinedness or gentleness. And we study these. The differences in heavy and light, coarse, refined, bring about different um, effects in the body they bring about different benefits and so we need to study these variations in the long breathing of heavy and light coarse and refined in order to see what kind of different results effects and benefits they bring in order to understand the long breathing in all its aspects The second lesson is the short breathing to study all aspects of the short breathing. And then we will know how the short breathing and long breathing differ. We can study the very, very short breathing or the not so short breathing and the variations in between. We study the the different kinds of short-breathing to see how they differ in activity, effect, and benefits. The more we study the short-breathing, the more we will see how different it is than the long-breathing in its activities, um, effects, and benefits. Eventually, we see more and more clearly what kind of long breathing is most appropriate. And we see what the short breathing is like. So in the end, we see that there's important differences between the long breathing and the short breathing. Understanding one helps us to understand its opposite. And so together, This leads to a comprehensive understanding of the breathing. And we know the kind of breathing that is most appropriate. The most important thing to learn here is the different influences, the different reactions of the long and short breathing. We need to learn this now because we'll use this understanding later in our practice. The third lesson is to observe that the, the breathing group and the, the flesh group, the, these physical bodies here, are connected, to see the close connection between the breathing and the rest of the body. All the different kinds of breathing, long, short, heavy, light, coarse, fine, all of these kinds of breathing have their influences upon the flesh and blood of our bodies. This is the third lesson, to see this very deeply, this connection. For example, if blood is flowing quite copiously. There's a lot of blood pouring out of a wound. One can use the very long, refined breathing to actually s- slow the flow of blood. This is just an example of the connection between the breathing and the flesh and blood bodies. Just to more deeply see this connection is less than three. The fourth lesson is calming the breathing. Once we've seen that the breathing has such direct influence and important influence on the rest of the body, then we realize that by calming the breathing, the body is calmed. The more subtly, the more we calm and relax the breathing, the more the body calms and relaxes. So in order to have the relaxed, calm, healthy body that we require for meditation, we can use the breathing. We can't bring this about directly just by telling the body to be relaxed, but we can use the breathing in order to calm the body. So the fourth lesson here is refining and calming the breathing. Now, one should ask what will be the results and benefits of practicing these first four lessons? We can answer that there will be much more mindfulness than before. However mindful you were before beginning this practice, through working on these four lessons, there will be far more mindfulness. There will be far more samadhi. The mind will be much more stable, strong, clear, alert. And there will be much more wisdom. Our comprehension and understanding of the things in our lives will be much more extensive than before. We can say that sila, samadhi, and Panya are are developing sila is usually translated morality and people often think of it as following rules whether the five rules of buddhism or the ten commandments or whatever but here we don't need to have such a crude kind of sila of normalcy or morality but just that one is able to control oneself by practicing anapanasati, the self-control and discipline inherent in that is a very natural kind of sila. And this we have much more than before. The samadhi, the ability to develop and properly use our minds is, is is getting much better. And then the panya, the right knowing of the things in our lives, is also growing. These are the benefits of practicing the first four lessons. And further, we can have comfort and happiness whenever we want. The more skillful we are in lesson four, the better our ability to be happy to be relaxed, comfortable, and happy whenever we wish. Whenever we need some happiness, we can bring it about by practicing lesson, lesson four. This is very valuable to have this ability to be happy. But don't go in attaching to it, clinging to it, turning it into some kind of bhava. Some formish existence. Don't go that far. But to just be able to have this comfort and happy feeling is another result of lesson four. And an even better result is that we will be ready to practice further, to practice on a higher level. This is an even better result. Once we've finished the stage of practice dealing with the body, then we come to the stage that deals with the vedana or feeling. This also has four lessons, so sometimes it's called a tetrad. Now, it would be quite difficult and time-consuming to go and study all the possibilities of feeling. So we'll take specifically the feelings which are most important, which we, which are most necessary for us to understand and control. The first of these that we'll study is called piti, piti, which is can be translated as rapture. It's a strong, excited kind of joy. With, it's got a lot of energy to it, it's very stimulating. It can even be quite kind of shaking, it's a lot of kind of movement in it. We need to taste this feeling. We taste it, we kind of drink it, experience it, until we know it thoroughly, we know all about it through our experience of it. The second lesson of this stage, or the sixth overall, is to study the kind of feeling which, has, which is calm and cool. Piti is still kind of shaking and trembling, very stimulating. So then we come to the kind of feeling, the kind of happy feeling which is calm and cool. It's a very calm kind of contentment which is called sukha. You can translate it as happiness, or even bliss, if you wish. But the thing to recognize is that it's calm, that it's cool. So now we taste and experience this kind of feeling until we know it thoroughly. And then we'll know the range of happy feelings from the excited, stimulating, kind of trembling, piti, to the calm, Cool, sukha. So we'll know the range from very stimulating to very calm. So there are these two kinds of satisfaction. When we're satisfied in a rather crude way, that's the stimulating piti. When the satisfaction is very calm, when it's more of a contentment, we call that sukha. Now we examine and experience these just enough to get to know their natures. We're not getting attached to these and getting all involved in them. But one just contr- maintains and controls them enough to experience them in order to understand their nature. We don't go turning them into a lot of existence and, and ego. But we understand their natures so that we understand how Dhamma works. Now, this kind of satisfaction we're talking about here arises from an awareness of accomplishment and success in our practice. Whenever we feel that we have been successful in our meditation, there will arise some form of piti or sukha. This is a very natural phenomena, which we should understand. Once we feel that there has been some accomplishment or achievement, then these arise. So whenever this occurs, at whatever point in our practice, whatever lesson, even the higher lessons, when there is this sense of success, either piti or sukha will appear. This is a natural phenomena of the mind. Not only do they arise kind of naturally, automatically, when there is some success in practice, but we can also learn to make them happen. We can force these things to arise, especially if we are successful if we gain skill in practicing lesson four, then we can create PT and sukha whenever we wish through our ability to calm the breathing. So they arise both kind of naturally whenever there is success, a spontaneous response to that success, but they can also be created, made directly by practicing lesson four. If we practice successfully through the whole series of lessons that make up mindfulness with breathing, then piti and sukha will arise spontaneously the entire way. Okay, the first lesson of this stage is to know piti until we can control it. And the second is to know sukha, happiness, until we can control it. The third lesson is to to look deeply at these feelings until we see that they control the thinking. The feelings force thoughts. Now the Buddha specifically used the word jitta, mind or heart. But here we're speaking of the the thinking and you can look directly and see how it's the feelings that that force, that create the thoughts. Seeing, examining this fact is the third lesson. You can take a a bit of a review of your past and see if you can find any thought that doesn't arise from some feeling. If you are able to look at this carefully, you'll see that there isn't any thought that doesn't come from feeling. There won't be any thought that isn't based in or in response to some feeling. The fourth lesson is then to not let our minds just wander according to our habits and our conditioning according to our programming in our past. Instead, to learn to control the mind so that it only thinks in ways that are useful, that are truly beneficial. Once we see that the feelings control the thinking, then we can learn to control this power of the feelings to to force the thinking. And then we can use this so that our thinking only follows lines and ways that are actually useful. We no longer let the mind wander all over according to old habits and our conditioning. When we have gained mastery in these latest four lessons, those concerned with the feelings, then our mindfulness will be even more quick and subtle than before. One's morality will be even more complete and natural. The firmness, stability, focus of mind will be even stronger, and wisdom will be deeper, more extensive so our mindfulness sati the one's morality is or sila the samadhi strength of mind and panya wisdom all of these are developed even further than when we had finished the first four lessons that means that we will have an even as these four grow then we can have the ability to control the feelings. Instead of letting the feelings control us, we can control the feelings, which is the same as being able to control the world. When we can control the feelings, there's nothing in the world that can create a problem for, for us through the feelings. And now we can practice Dhamma on a higher level than previously. We can move on to an even more refined stage and active of, an aspect of practice. Don't ever forget this, that our practice is always enabling us to move forward to a higher, more refined level of practice. Which brings us to the next stage. That concerning the citta, the mind or heart, in which there are four lessons. Also, the the essence or or purpose of this of these lessons is that we will know the thing called mind thoroughly. We'll have a thorough and complete understanding of mind, and we'll be able to control the mind according to our, our aims. The first lesson here is to know every kind of mind, to know the mind in every kind of type or condition it has. This we need to speak of in some detail in order for you to understand. Now, in many cases, we know the different kinds of mind by direct experience by experiencing that mind itself however there are a few kinds of mind which are rather exalted and until we have had direct experience of them we need to know we can only know them through inference through comparing them with minds that we already know now we can Quite easily experience the mind that ha- is lustful, the mind that has anger, the mind that is deluded. We can experience all of these directly. We have frequent experience of these kinds of s- states. But that which we will have to know by inference are the opposites of these. The mind that is in which lust is totally absent, the mind in which there's absolutely no hatred or anger, no delusion. We're meaning the mind in which these are totally absent, there are no seeds left of lust, hatred, and delusion. These kinds of minds we have not yet experienced, so we can only know them from inference, but we can get a, a good understanding of those, those minds by studying how lust, hatred, and delusion bites us. When we see how, for example, lust bites the mind, how it makes the mind hot, when we see the kind of suffering and pain that this causes, then this will allow us to infer how peaceful, how cool, how free the mind is where there is no lust. And the same thing we can infer from our experience of the the pain and heat of hatred and the dukkha of delusion. The next pair is the mind which is distracted, the restless mind, and the mind which is not at all restless, which is totally undistracted. The distracted, restless mind, the agitated mind, we can know most easily when we are unable to sleep. There are the times when we can sleep because our minds are so agitated. And so we can know this kind of mind quite easily, even in ordinary life. The mind that is Totally undistracted, however, is right now beyond our ability to experience, and so we must infer it from our observation of the mind that is distracted. But we can observe the distracted mind in such a way as to understand its opposite, the mind that is not distracted when there is the peace of non-distraction. Next is the mind which is highest, the kind of supreme level of mind or the not yet highest mind. Now we, we know that quite obviously our minds are not yet on the highest level. So first we can study that. We can experience the mind which is not yet on the highest level. And then after we have experienced that thoroughly, one can see how this mind, which is always has some dukkha, where there's always some level of dissatisfaction in this mind, this not yet highest mind. Then we can get a sense of how the highest mind, is totally above all dukkha. The next pair is the mind which is vimutti and the mind which is not. Vimutti means emancipated, so knowing the mind that is emancipated and the mind that is not. For now, the mind is not yet emancipated, and so we, we know that. But we also And so we we see the mind that still has troubles, still has problems, the mind where there is still bhava, sexual existence, formish existence, and formless existence. And from seeing these problems of these different existences, then one can get an understanding of the mind which is emancipated from all states of existence. The last pair is to know whether the mind is immovable or not. The mind that is immovable is the mind that can never be, where nothing can change it, where nothing can change it. This is the mind that has a Dhammayata, which we'll speak about later. The mind that has a dhammayadā is unchangeable, unshakable, invulnerable. But now the mind has all kinds of problems. It's changing from, from who knows how many times each day. And So there are all kinds of things can come and change and shake and affect this mind. From studying the vulnerability, the mutability of the mind, then we can also understand the mind that has a Dhammayada, the immovable mind. Now we study all of these different states of mind in order to know them so that we can choose the best kind of mind, the mind that is most appropriate for us to aim for. By studying them all, then we will realize the kind of mind that we really need, the kind of mind that is most healthy, and so we study them with this purpose, to be able to choose the kind of mind which is most appropriate. The second lesson of this third group is to make the mind joyful. To have a mind that is in a state of true joy or delight. Now, this doesn't mean a mind that is joyful or enjoying different kinds of existence, sexual formish and formless existence. But it's the mind that has the joy of Dhamma, a kind of joy which is higher and more pure. And so the mind we we delight it, we, we make it, we train it, whatever you, however you want to put it, the mind trains in being joyful on higher and higher levels until the mind, this mind, there is the kind of mind which is joyful in the, the most satisfying kind of way. The kind of mind that cannot be affected or changed or manipulated by anything. The third lesson here is to stabilize the mind, to stabilize or secure the mind. This is the literal name of it, but the meaning doesn't come out quite clearly enough. There are certain qualities of the the truly stable mind that need to be explained to properly understand this lesson. The first factor is cleanliness. This mind is clean. There's nothing dirty in this kind of mind. There are none of the hindrances, none of the defilements polluting this kind of mind. It's void of hindrances and defilements. So we say that it is clean. The second factor is the mind can gather all its energy and focus it in a single point. Normally the mind's energy is kind of just spreading all over or radiating outward in all directions. But when the mind can gather all that energy together and focus it in a single point, this is the second quality, this focused, concentrated quality. It's like a magnifying glass which can take the rays of the sun and focus them into a very powerful point which is strong enough to even light paper on fire. The third factor is a flexibility or agility of mind. And what this really means is the mind is ready to work or the mind is active. If the mind is stiff or thick or sluggish, then it's not really ready to do anything. But when the mind has this activeness of flexibility and agility, it's no longer a a hard or a confused mind. When it has this activity, then it's ready to do any duty, to carry out any responsibility. This activeness, this readiness of mind, the mind that is fit for its work is the third factor. But, excuse me, this quality of mind is the third factor. If the mind isn't clean, it won't be able to gather its, and collect its energy to focus its energy And if the energy of the mind isn't focused, then it won't be properly active. And so these are connected in this way. The mind must first be pure, be clean, in order for it to focus all its energy in one point. And then the mind must focus itself in order to be truly active and ready. The next lesson is to release or let go anything that has, the mind is clinging to or anything that is clinging to the mind. The mind releases to release the mind from anything clinging to it or the release, the thing from the mind, which is clinging. Now, sila or morality can release things in its way and then samadhi, the mental training and development can release things in its way. And then wisdom releases things absolutely according to the methods and means, the power of wisdom. And then sati, mindfulness and sampacanya, which is a kind of wisdom in action, wisdom specifically dealing with the immediate situation. This sati and sampacanya are in, are used, are present in the application of all three of sila, samadhi and panya. So our training in these four lessons regarding the citta, our our training mindfulness, this wisdom in action, morality, samadhi, and wisdom on even higher and more refined levels. So we can summarize these four lessons by saying one is now master over the mind. For all one's life, one has been a slave of the mind, the mind's servant, is doing whatever the craziness and the habits of the mind order. But now one is master over the mind. So now one has a mind which the Thais call sadhapat which means anything you could wish for. Anything you can wish for, that mind can do it. And we can also describe this as the almighty mind, the mind that has power over everything. So the results of thoroughly practicing these four lessons are the mind that can have anything it wishes for, the mind which is almighty. And finally, we have the mind that's ready to practice even further, even higher. We must apologize. We have um, estimated our use of time a little bit off the mark, and so we've used up the time, but we haven't yet completed our explanation of mindfulness with breathing. So we'll have to finish tomorrow. We've covered the first three stages today. We'll cover the last stage tomorrow morning. So thank you for being very good listeners. It's been very patient. Thank you.